Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Uh, this morning we're starting a new practice. If you haven't been here, we're in a series called Practicing the Way of Jesus, looking at fault, being apprentices of Jesus. To be an apprentice is to organize your life around three things, learning to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And how do we learn to be with Jesus? Well, that we do that through practices, devotion, quiet times. How do we become like Jesus? We've talked about this. It involves a whole spiritual uh, formation paradigm. But as followers, we're also invited to do what he did. This morning, um, we're moving away from silence and solitude, uh, which hopefully some of you are beginning to integrate into your life, and we're going to start talking about fasting. Um, and th- there's a bunch of things that we can talk about with fasting, and I want to share three of the things we'll talk about in the next four weeks. One, fasting is a way that we starve the flesh to feed the spirit. And by flesh, I don't mean your physical bodies, although that sometimes is what it feels like. Um, uh, what you see in Scripture is fasting is used as a way to um, battle the sinful nature, the sinful self, the flesh that Paul refers to and other authors in the New Testament is this sinful uh, desire that we all have as humans. Um, and, and by starving that out, learning to uh, resist temptation through fasting, we learn to feed the Spirit inside of us uh, with the Spirit of God in our life. So some scholars talk about fasting as feast, feasting with the Lord. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. You see this as a practice that Jesus does. That's the first thing. The second is fasting is a way that we intentionally uh, focus in prayer. So there's, there's a connection between the intensity of our prayers and fasting. Um, so we'll talk about that as well in a couple of weeks. But today I'm going to stop, talk about the third one, and it's probably the, the most unfamiliar to us. And it's Isaiah 58. It's found here. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, he redefines fasting um, uh, in, in a way that is helpful for us. Because the third element of fasting is fasting as a way of standing in solidarity with the poor. So that's what we're going to talk about today is how as we as a church take on a discipline of fasting um, and that act itself becomes a way of standing in solidarity with the poor. Are you with me? So before we get into Isaiah 58, I thought we'd pray and then we'll let God do, and then we'll let the the word do his thing. This this is a sermon that preaches itself, so I'm just going to push play and then we'll just go from there, okay? I'm just just kidding. Jesus, we thank you. (laughs) We need you. I know it doesn't preach itself. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need your life. I pray right now that you would unlock the things in our hearts that are, we're holding on to that need to be released. Um, in your name, amen. So uh, Isaiah speaks to the community of God. He's speaking to the people of God at a time where um, the people of God were doing spiritual things. They, were, they had this, they were known for an intense spiritual life. And it was, but it was a kind of personal self-centered faith that neglected the just community God was after. And so in this passage, Isaiah will remind the people of God of who they were or who they are, their identity, and why they were there in the first place, their calling. And so I want to talk about that. So Because fasting has something to do with our identity and calling as the people of God. So Isaiah 58, let's read the first few verses together. 
And by the way, Isaiah 58 is the garden's church. This is where we get our name from, this passage of scripture. So that's why it will be, this sermon will be familiar. um, But for many of us, it's also a reminder of why we are here. So it says this, shout it out aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and just talking about how hungry you are and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves as if only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes. It's a pretty light sermon, right? Isaiah is just going off on the people of God. And he's speaking on behalf of God and, and giving this kind of dialogue. And the people of God were doing spiritual things. They were worshiping. They were gathering together to worship God. They were singing songs. They were, they were fasting. They were not eating all day long as a way to bring, uh, give, uh, and they were praying in that fast, giving up food to pray so that God would see their intensity of faith. But what Isaiah is saying in many ways is if you are earnestly seeking God in prayer and he shows up, you should expect, you should at least expect when he shows up to do the thing he asks of you. Should you not? That if you set time aside and, God, and seek him, you should be willing to respond to the heart that he reveals to you. Should you not? And this is what Isaiah is getting after. And see, you can't just talk about it. It's in some ways, at the time that Isaiah was speaking to the people, he speaks this word to the people in the community of faith. They were spending all this energy on prayer and fasting and seeking God as a way of getting God's attention. But while they were doing that, they were missing the point and the heart of God. That their self-consuming spirituality was inconsistent with God's heart for justice and righteousness and peace. So Isaiah makes a larger point right away. And I just, you need to see this. This is all over the scripture. That there's a direct connection between your love for God or your relationship to God and your relationship to everyone else. That you cannot have a relationship with God and not involve relationship with other people. How you treat other people reflects the view you have of God. This is so important for the people of God. It is ne- there's no such thing as me, myself, and God. A lone disciple. That is not a reality. It's so far from the biblical truth that Paul summarizes the entire law by, with one verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. That love your neighbor as yourself will reflect your love for God. Or better yet, the love you've learned to receive from God. How are we doing? Isaiah 58. Verse, are we okay? Are we going somewhere today? <laughs> Take a deep breath. This is going to get fun, I promise. Verse 6. Verse six, it says this. So here, here he goes. He's, he's challenged. This is not the fast. And he says this. Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free 
and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own families? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. I. Isaiah says fasting, the spiritual discipline, this practice has something to do with undoing injustice, releasing the oppressed, feeding the hungry, and providing sanctuary for the homeless. Isaiah was surrounded by well-meaning people of God, but they fasted primarily as a way to experience God and intensify their worship. But Isaiah summons his audience that a genuine fast is a response to the injustice around them. That you can't just seek God for your own merry way of life, but we have to seek God on behalf of the people that aren't 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 experiencing God's kingdom, God's way of life on earth as it is in heaven. The people of God are to live in such a way where they recognize, they're aware, they're paying attention to the injustices around them and they invite that, that injustice to become part of their spirituality, part of their relationship with God. They bring that into, into their ordinary life. They don't just numb out to it, flipping and scrolling, posting a like, sign a petition, they practice disciplines that tie them to those that are suffering, those that are experiencing injustice around them. Are you with me? So when we fast, we cry out on behalf of the poor, the marginalized, and the suffering. When we experience the physical hunger, when we choose to fast, we let that hunger unite our body and spirit to those that are experiencing the injustice of hunger around the world. As the people of God, what Isaiah is saying, we can't just sing songs about God's justice. We have to bring justice to the land. We can't, just, we can't just do Bible studies about Jesus. We have to become the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. We can't just talk about God being generous to us and so grace-filled to us. We have to be gracious and generous to everyone else. Do you see what he's doing? He's tying this, this, this our, our spiritual activity, our daily spiritual activities are tied to each other and how we treat one another. That there's a greater calling on the church, the church, to reflect God's heart and character to the world. So what does this have to do with fasting? What does it mean to fast as standing in solidarity with the poor? Well, we'll get to the practical at the very end, but Scott McKnight says this. He says, we can explain, and I had, we'll have this fixed by next service. We, I just wanna say, just so you know, we actually have a value at the garden to really invest more in the mission than the gathering. Do you know this? Like we could, we could move, we can afford to go to a better facility that might be a little more, fit us better, be a little more convenient and seeker sensitive, but we choose to be here for now. We feel like the Lord told us to be here. Every time we tried to leave, it just didn't happen. So we're here and we haven't, I mean, we could, I mean, these speakers are like, how old, like six years old or something like that. Um, the, the sound, I mean, like we don't even know they're maybe older than that. We, like, I don't even know. We just don't have a big budget here because we want to give it everywhere else. Do you, this is a value we've decided. So people are always like, hey, you should think about this in the gathering. I, I, don't, I know that you can do that. I don't want to think about that. 
Because there's 53% of our families are single moms. One out of five people in our city are below federal poverty line. We have the largest number of kids in the foster system in LA County, 35,000. Let's use money that direction. Are you with me? So we don't have slides. Sorry. We can explain this theoretically as follows. Food joins humans to other humans because they, we share meals together. Whenever we give up food intentionally, we refrain from relationships. When, one, when a group protests by fasting, they both negate one relationship with the haves. And they affirm another relationship with the have-nots. And since the structures of power always have sufficient food, fasting is not only refusing relationship, but it's also protesting the power structures that exist. So when we fast, we, we recognize we give up food together because we are people that have enough food that we can fast. People that aren't eating because the, the 800 million people every day that aren't eating around the world are not fasting, they're starving. And we give up our food to unite ourselves with those people around the world. With our brothers and sisters here in Long Beach that are living homeless or that are only eating two meals a day because they can't afford it. We choose to enter into their story. We negate one relationship and say, no, we're part of this solution. Let us, let us, let us feel what you feel. Are you with me? In other words, fasting has a dimension of leaving the kind of community that is normal to you and stepping into a different kind of community that is less familiar. And by being united to our brothers and sisters who are experiencing injustice, we, the injustice that they're experiencing around the world are things like slavery, systemic poverty, abuse, racism, hunger, and the injustice list goes on and on. And we choose through this type of fast to connect ourselves to the global injustices in the world. Like 500 people died last week in Syria. The crisis is still going on. I was, I was reading this last night and my heart broke. And it's just overwhelming the pain in the world. And we can just, what happens is we just get paralyzed. And so we just turn the channel, flip this, you know, we just go onto Instagram and Facebook and we just ignore that feeling. And God wants that feeling to be alive and well so that we do something. These are our kids. We have to do something. This is what, Jesus, this is what Isaiah is saying as the people of God. And so when we experience that hunger, we stand, we unite ourselves in solidarity with those who are experiencing injustice. This itself, by choosing this kind of fast, I call it a discipline of compassion. Because compassion, in my definition, well, the definition is to feel deep, to suffer with. I like to say compassion is to feel and act towards others the way God feels and acts towards you. And so Isaiah is calling us to, to act compassionately, to, to discipline ourselves in compassion. And so what he does, though, is in this passage, he connects uh, this act of compassion and justice this discipline of compassion and justice, of, of fasting to our identity and calling as the people of God. And you see this played out in Jesus's ministry when he fasts for 40 days. It's his identity and vocation and calling that are both tempted and solidified by fasting. If you were the son of God, then you would. Questioning his identity and his vocation. 
And so something about fasting like this solidifies our identity and calling, why we are here in the first place, who we are and why we are here. Are you with me? Check this out. I want to make a quick detour. And this will be very familiar because I've preached on this in the past. And I realize the Bible commands us more than anything else to remember. So my best sermons, I'm just going to try pulling those back. So here's a couple of thoughts about this. But you need to, you need to understand that identity is so important here for the people of God. Um, first of all, two just assumptions I want to make. That the people of God are called to reflect God's heart and character in the world. The people of God are called to reflect God's heart and character in the world. The second is this, that the scripture reveals a God who has an overwhelming concern for the poor, broken, and marginalized. That in the scripture, what you read in the Bible is a God who has an overwhelming concern and care for the poor, the broken, and the marginalized. This is not a liberal thing. Okay, This is not a party thing. This is the, the biblical reading of Scripture. 2,000 verses have to do with the poor, broken, and marginalized. 15% of all of the Scripture is about what to do with the poor, broken, and marginalized. Apparently, God has a heart for the poor, broken, and marginalized. Are you with me? Over 2,000 verses. This is a lot, 15%. So to understand the significance of Isaiah's uh, sermon and what he's doing in Isaiah 58, we have to go back to the beginning. So Exodus, stay with me. Exodus, the people of God are liberated from this oppressive empire. They were slaves, Israel were slaves to Egypt. And the king of Egypt was a guy named Pharaoh who oppressed them. And their living conditions were horrible. They made bricks seven days a week. And in the story of Exodus, the Israelites cry out to God. And God hears the cries of the oppressed. This is how Exodus begins. God, Yahweh, is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. God sends Moses and begins this mission to free Israel out of the oppressive empire. And there's this moment where they're freed and they're at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they uh, make a covenant with God. And it says in Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a Listen to this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to Israel. So Israel makes a covenant to, with God and God says to them, you'll be my treasured possession, you'll be my people. But he calls them a kingdom of priests. A priest was a function. It was their calling in the world to stand in the gap on behalf of God to the rest of the nations and on, the rest of the, uh, uh, on behalf of the nations to God. That's what a priest does. A priest stands in between um, the people and the, de the deity. Are you with me on that? So the functional role was to serve as the priest to the rest of the world. And a holy nation is about identity set apart, chosen, chosen to be a treasured possession, chosen to live in such a way, holy, set apart, to display God to the nations. This is the identity and vocation or calling of Israel. Now, the way they were designed to do this as the people of God is the Old Testament, the law. That they were to reflect God to the world through the law, the 613 commands. If you obey me fully, if you obey the commands, and you, then you will reflect me into the world. Now, the story of the Bible, the Old Testament, is that they do not do this, do they? They don't follow the law. They don't follow the commands um, they, they don't live as an example to the rest 
of the nation. And, and I just need to say, first of all, um, uh, man, I really like this, this text. I, I like this story so much. But you have to understand that even Exodus is a recommissioning of the human identity and calling. Because in Genesis, we're called to steward creation on behalf of God, to live as image bearers. So we are given this divine image to reflect God into the world, reflecting his character and nature. This is what it means to be fully human. And the task to rule and subdue is to steward creation. In In other words, to create an environment for the rest of creation to flourish. That's the task of humanity. And then it's re-established in Exodus chapter 19 for Israel. And they don't live it out. Um, but what I want to show you is this theme of living out God's character in the world. Living out God's heart and reflecting into the world. And it's very practical. We could talk about it. We could affirm it. Yeah, I get it, Darren. We, we're called to live out God's heart to the, char- to the world. But actually, there's all sorts of texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament that show how tangible this calling is for the people of God. So there's a passage in Leviticus. It's familiar to you you, because I know you're reading Leviticus. Um, (laughs) Verse 19, it's called gleaning rites. And it says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Yesterday, we got in and out. Um, burger in our in our car. We went to to get some stuff at a craft store, and we were driving back when we got In and Out. God bless cheeseburgers, um, which I haven't eaten a lot of lately. But we had In and Out, and Ezra didn't get any fries. But he says, "Hey, mommy, can I have all the? F- he wasn't allowed to have anymore. Can I have any fries that fall off of the plate? It's gleaning rights. I, you know, it's that's what it is. It's." But the idea here is, look, when you go into the inheritance, the promised land, when you step into abundance where there's more than enough. Um, Some people that you're going to be in life with, you might not know them, they might be strangers, aren't going to have enough. And if you have a field um, and you get to harvest that field, uh, you get one shot at going over that field. So if you have a vineyard, you get to collect those grapes. Any grapes that fall on the ground, leave them. The, the edges, leave them. And um, if you miss them, you don't get to go back. Leave them for people that don't have their own fields. Gleaning rights. Are you with me? It's a, it's a legal command for the people of God to make sure that if you have, share with those that don't have. And then it goes on in Deuteronomy, verse 15. I love this passage because it's, it's, it's more than just setting up legal parameters. It gets a little deeper because um, we could discipline ourselves that way. But even in Deuteronomy, which is written as a way uh, to remind the people of God as they step into this abundant provision that they're about to inherit the promised land. Hey, God's been providing all of your needs through manna, through water from rocks, but you're going to step in and you're probably going to forget a lot of things. So remember Remember this, if anyone is poor, verse 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, verse seven. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the uh, towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. This is a command, don't do this or this. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And then it goes even deeper. Look, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. 
they may then appeal to the Lord against you, which is a, a, a Hebrew way of saying they may, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hands to. There will, be, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, which is not a, so forget about it, Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. This is where we go, oh, there's always gonna be poor. Yes, therefore, be open-handed and soft-hearted towards your brothers and sisters. In other words, this is a a crazy provision that he's saying, like, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted, rather share. And if there comes a moment where you're thinking it's the sixth year, on the seventh year we cancel debts, that means I'm not going to get paid back. Don't think to yourself, I better not give to them and give them nothing. Because then they can cry out to the Lord, which is ding, 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 Exodus. The Deuteronomy is going right to Exodus. He's saying, otherwise, they're going to cry out to God. And we know because of Exodus what happens when people who are oppressed cry out. Yahweh hears their cries. And don't be hard-hearted. Who is the character in Exodus that was hard-hearted? Pharaoh. The author of Deuteronomy is saying the way of empire, domination, and oppression begins. The way it begins is through subtle, simple thoughts like, I'm not going to share this right now. That is the heart of Egypt. That is the way of Pharaoh. And it doesn't start with people that already have power. It starts with those who have a little and choose not to share with those that don't have enough. I've shared this story, and some of you have heard it, and um, some of you haven't. But uh, a few, two years ago, I was on a men's retreat, pretty much the only other men's retreat I've ever been on other than this one. And like I said, I don't really enjoy men's retreats, but I'm going on this men's retreat. My friend talked me into going on this men's retreat and driving to Colorado, caravanning, camping along the way. I'm not a big camper. I don't like the cold. I barely have a suit. I don't have anything for the trip, but I decided to go on the trip. We caravan six guys into two cars, and on the way, one of them breaks down in Beaver, Utah. Anyone from Beaver, Utah? Um, So there we were. It's pouring down rain. We decided to leave the car to get it fixed and put all six dudes in a, in a forerunner with all of our stuff t- like packed on top, like four feet high. And um, we, we all get in. We're all, we're all driving to get to a campsite. And at that time, I remember everyone was hungry and I was hungry. I was sitting in the front seat somehow, managed to get in the front seat and happened to have all my food. And I opened up the bag and right on top, my wife packed me a package of dried mangoes. I heard it said in Overheard LA, dried mangoes are the, is, is the LA version of beef jerky. And <laughs> dried mangoes, there's nothing like it. But I began to open my bag of dried mangoes and you've heard the story and I thought to myself, if I open this bag of dried mangoes, then I will have to share with the five other hungry dudes in the car and there won't be enough for me. So I began to push it back into my bag harboring a wicked thought as they cried out to the Lord. (laughs) No, at the same time as I put it back, I heard in my heart and head, if this is how you are with dried mangoes, what else in your life are you doing this with? And I opened it up and gave it and shared it with everyone. It was gone instantaneously. But that... (laughs) And since I told that story, like, last year, I've received packages in the mail of dried mangoes... (laughs) 
tenfold. <laughs> uh, which is a sermon in itself. But the point is the way of empire begins with things like dried mangoes. And it's true. Uh, and it's true. We learn through little ways of either allowing our, our, our stories to be expanded by what we give away and share or smaller by what we don't share. Isn't that interesting? I'm wanting to share a story, but I don't think I'm going to because uh, I want to share this story, but I want to share it. I don't want to share it because I feel like you'll look at me like I'm better or my wife and I did something, but I want to share it. And so I want to say this. I regularly am missing the mark. I regularly sin. I regularly um, disobey God. I regularly have to confess sins because I treat my wife inappropriately sometimes as a husband. Um, I'm, I am, just this last week, dealing with massive insecurity, realizing that I have strong emotions that I haven't processed. I'm an emotional adolescent, according to some quiz that I took. Um, <laughs> So as I share this story, um, it's just maybe, it's just to expand what's possible. And, but it is one that we've gotten right um, by the grace of the Lord. So what started a few years ago with this story of dried mangoes was this deeper awareness that God began to show the things in my life that I was holding on to. And, um, and so I began this journey at that same time uh, of minimalism and pursuing less of trying to give more away. And at the end of 2016, shortly after that story, I felt like the Lord said to Alex and I, say to me, I want you to give away 17% of your income in 2017, which is a lot of money. Now, it's not a lot of money compared to what people make, but for a pastor, it's a lot of money. And anyone, it's a lot. That's a large percentage. That's way more than what we've given ever. And I brought it to Alex in a, in a I perfectly timed, like just like my... <laughs> You know, it was like things were going great. You know, you know, anyone know what that's like? They have to like have, it's like double dutch. You're like, when do I talk to her about this? Okay, here we go, here we go. <laughs> we're doing it, no, it's failing, oh no. <laughs> I'm like, tight up, no. So I brought it to her and she just laughed. She's like, Darren, you have no idea what that means. And there's no way we can do that. Now, that happened, right? So. And then I felt like the Lord said, just watch and see. Keep a record of all that you give away this year. So 2017, six months in, we have a son, another son. And I hear the Lord say, sell your house and give money away and move back to your old neighborhood. Had no idea what was going to happen. But my wife said yes to that. And through that process, in 2017, we were able to give more than 17% of our income away. And I, I don't say that because I'm proud of that. I'm not very proud of it. I feel like God's calling us to greater generosity. I say that because it started with dried mangoes. And it led to our house and the amount of money that we received, a significant amount of that was given away to where we were able to give. Now, I, this is the first year where I feel like that was able to happen, a number was given. But I say that, I wanted to share that because it's not like it happened overnight. You don't learn to give cars away when you have lots of cars. You learn to give it when you, you only have one car. You don't learn to give extraordinary amounts of money or share with those um, overnight. You learn it through little tiny practices like clothes, like uh, old phones, like um, 
like uh, uh, extra money, like movie tickets. Like you go to the store and you think, oh, I wonder if my friends need something from Costco. And you include them in your Costco run. Do you know what I'm saying? God bless you for all of you who do that. Um, And if you don't have that set up, you should think about it. It makes the life much easier. But you learn it through small practices. And Alex and I, we learned it through an intentional season of commitment to things. And then we step into 2018 and my wife says, baby, can we just take it easy on giving away? It's, it's costly. She literally was calculating the cost. And it's, so we're, that's where we're at. We're not, we're not, I just want to share that. Is that okay? Yeah. You don't look at me better, right? Um, just put me back down, okay? Put me back down. Because um, I'll just confess one more sin to you. So I, I, I'll say <laughs> I was supposed to fast on a day, and I didn't fast, and I ate, and I forgot. And my, my wife was giving something up, and I totally snub and I was like yeah I totally did it and then I had to confess to her that I didn't fast I, you know what that's called a lie I lied to her I, just, I did that and it's not funny it's sin I just want you to know I'm putting myself back there are we good okay I probably won't share that story in the second service you're lucky you get it in the first so why, what's going on here well the people of God are called to take care of each other and everyone else Matthew 25, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. James 1, 27, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this. Look after the orphan and the widows in their distress. 1 John 3, 16, how do we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to do the same for ourselves. But if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Brothers and sisters, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As the people of God, as the church, we fast to stand in solidarity with the poor. We leave grapes for those that don't have a field of their own. We let, we give to those who want to borrow from us. We take care of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, the foreigner, the immigrant. We look after the orphan and the widows. We share our stuff with those who don't have enough. Why? Because we know what love is. We do this because this is what God has done for us. Because this is why we are here. And this is who we are. And we do this because if we don't do this as the church, then society falls apart. According to scripture, according to 30 plus years of research by Ryan Richard Wilkerson and Kate Pickett, who wrote The Spirit Level, why equal societies are almost always better. The research shows this. I don't care what your political stance is, but I just want to talk about the, the scientific study, um, the sociological study for the last 30 years of gap income equality among nations. And it shows this, that the greater the income gap between the wealthy and the poor, the greater the income gap between the wealthy and the poor in any society, the greater number of problems there are for the whole of society, not just for the poor. For everyone. This is 30 plus years of research. They say that the greater the inequality in a society, the greater the number of problems people face. And here are a list of the problems. Greater physical health problems for everyone. Greater mental health problems for everyone. Greater drug abuse problems for everyone. Greater incarceration rates. Greater, greater educational issues, greater obesity, greater violence, greater anxiety, greater teen pregnancy. So the, the reality is this. Research shows, society is pointing to this. Um, the Bible points to it that when we don't care for each other and share, things get worse, society falls apart. So how do we 
as a church begin to do this? Well, I want to, like all things, how do we begin to change? Well, one of the things you need to do is fast in a way that trains you towards compassion towards your brother and sister. And I think this is the biggest, I, this is a whole other sermon, but I look at what's going on in society and culture and I realized even this week I had this experience on Thursday night that made me realize um, everyone is looking for connection and meaning. Everyone's looking for meaningful relationship. Most of that relationship is built on what we get from it, right? But the church is the only place that, dig, that gives humanity its valuable dignity, its identity, because we're all made in the image of God. No matter if you have a disability, if you're born without certain chromosomes or with extra chromosomes, you all bear the image of God. And there are types of people in our society that are pushed to the margin that are the most oppressed people, and there's not much you can get out of a relationship with them. It's unconditional love for them. Christianity is the only ideology. Jesus is the only ideology that will actually heal this broken world. And how is he going to do that? Through his church. When we learn to love each other without needing to be loved back. When we learn to step into relationships with people who vote differently than us. Who demonize us and say, I want to know you. I want to know where you come from. I just want to ask questions and be your friend. How do we develop that type of compassionate worldview? Well, Isaiah says, through fasting through fasting as an intentional way of standing with those who are broken and marginalized and different than us. And brothers and sisters, what I've learned, and I'm just gonna end with some very practical stuff, is that this is a practice that's been going on for thousands of years in the church. Um, and it, we'll, we'll, we'll send this out, but I had slides for you. Christians have been choosing this fast for 2,000 years. One author says this, after you refrain from eating and bread in a, in a chosen fast. So this week, when you stop when you choose to give up a meal this week, he says this, estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten on that day and give that amount to a widow or orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his soul and pray to the Lord for you. St. Augustine said, how many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have chosen to give up this day? Um, another author in the 6th century said this, let us, lavish, let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches upon the poor so that we may not store up in our purses what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. So what are we gonna do as a church? We're gonna fast in this Lent season. And I wanna invite you to fast. Some of us, we should fast once a week as a discipline in our lives, once a month. What you do is you, you take that money, you calculate what you would have spent on breakfast or lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, coffee, whatever you're fasting, and give that away to those who are suffering locally or around the world. This is that act. This is that where you're connecting your spiritual life with God to the brothers and sisters that need it most. This is the type of fasting that we're talking about. A fasting that sees the overwhelming need for the poor. 3.7 billion live on less than $2 a day. And when we hear that statistic, we just kind of get numb or paralyzed. But what we can do is choose to enter in by becoming a community that will discipline ourselves to participate with them. Fast in such a way that you lavish your lunches upon the poor. We've been doing this. Alex and I, a couple months ago, we were like, how do we connect ourselves with the global poor? So we started doing this thing. I preached at it up, up in Portland and they did it in their missional communities. And I would love for all of our house churches to do this and for you to practice. Once a week, Alex and I do rice and beans night where we only eat rice and beans as a family. It's Ezra's favorite night. It's when he eats the most, apparently. <laughs> So, but we, we give away what we would have spent that dinner 
uh, or that day of food for our family to um, other needs around in our community or beyond. And we've given it to the poor. We've given it to Harvest India, Compassion, International Kids, um, and other things like that. But that's one of the ways we've engaged our whole family. I was trying to figure out how do I get Ezra to connect with our brothers and sisters in India who are living on less than a dollar a day. And this is the way we've intentionally allowed our dinner table to be a place of, of training and teaching for our kids. But also, it's our favorite night. Actually, we talked about it with our neighbors who aren't coming to our church, and our neighbors are doing it now. Um, and they have five kids, and she loves it. She's like, thank you so much. <laughs> My neighbor Amanda is doing it. It's so fun to see them outside doing it, and they're telling us about what it's doing for their family. And they're doing the same thing. They're choosing to give that money away. Um, but it's beans and night, rice night. Um, we, guys, we discipline ourselves to care for each other. We pass the bucket twice. How many of you have been here for that? Um, it started uh, uh, as just this random one-off, and it's become one of the most amazing gifts where we've been able to help and support the needs of our community where we just say, hey, if you have money here, just throw it in the bucket. If you need money here, just take it out of the bucket. And I loved it because in what we heard were stories of ushers who normally collect the money, taking money out and saying, are you sure that's all you need? Just like giving it. And that image I saw was, is just an image that's in my heart of what we're supposed to be. Now, we're not supposed to be a welfare church. We're supposed to be a justice church. But we do help each other and discipline ourselves to care for those that are in need. So there are so many ways we can practice these things. And I have so many stories. You guys have experienced them within house churches. House churches paying off debt is cool of a house church where people had extra money and there's somebody that had debt they didn't even know they had debt and they paid off their debt or a big portion of their debt um, people paying for vacations so couples who haven't been on vacation since their honeymoon get to go on a, a vacation um, people paying for rent paying for medical bills cut, like these are all things that we do organically as a church as a way to care for each other um, I just want to say a couple of things and hopefully invite you into the story on a bigger scale because at the garden, um, one of the things that I'm passionate about are the, is the foster system here. We do safe families here as a church. I had to speak at this uh, L.A. County pastors gathering, um, and it had massive churches all over Los Angeles County, all around the foster care system. How do we adopt the kids that are waiting? How do we deal with the 35,000 kids in the foster system, more than anywhere else in the United States? And they brought the garden, they brought me to come and speak because we are the most impactful church in L.A. County with safe families. That breaks my heart because our church is a few hundred people and there's 35,000 kids and churches with a much bigger audience, a much bigger budget. And I just, so I, I had to share at this thing. And at the end of the day, I just think one of our vision, one of our goals is that we are the number one. I said that a couple years ago, we'd be the number one safe families church. I never thought it would happen overnight, but I just think every single person that has a family needs to be involved in safe families. We can't, if you have an extra room, you need to be involved in safe families. If you have uh, enough in your fridge and some extra time here and there, I get texts all the time about needs for safe. Safe families are, it's not adoption, it's not foster care, it's working with at-risk families. So 50% of the kids that go into the foster system in L.A. County are there because of negligence from the family members. And most of the negligence is preventable. It's ha it has to do with parents who don't have any social connection or support when they have need. 
So they neglect their kids because they don't have a mom or, or a grandpa, an aunt, a niece, a friend to drop the kid off when they need to go to rehab or go to get education or go, to, go and do some uh, community service or whatever it is. So Safe Families prevents kids going into the system, which 50% of the kids that go into the system are never reunited with their families. It prevents that. And who gets to do that? The church. So we become, we've had college students doing safe families. We have families in our church. Our, our, our chi- children's director, um, Pastor Tammy and Ryan Callis. Like there's so many people volunteering, but it, all of us can be involved. That's one way that we can begin to, to see justice in our church. Isaiah 58 stuff, are you with me? 57,000 homeless people in LA County. 57,000 in LA County alone. We're the, I mean, there's, I, I, okay, I'm not gonna go off. I know you get the point. <laughs> it's 10.50. Hey, so I want you to fast. I want you to choose to fast as a way of crying out to the poor. I want you to calculate the money you would have spent on food, coffee, LaCroix, beer, wine, and give it up. And I want, um, what we give up in food, we can, uh, and what can, uh, when we fast can be converted to gifts to the poor. What we give up in time, not uh, spent eating can be converted into time spent relieving injustices, Scott McKnight says. Begin to create rhythms of life that choose to fast as a way of giving and serving those around us. And why do we do this, brothers and sisters? Because this is our vision. This is why we are here. This fast points us to the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus says, God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a cry for God's justice and shalom, a way of life to be experienced as a reality everywhere. So it's a cry for those who are blessed. It's the miserable people who are crying out, hungry and hurting and waiting for justice. We protest on their behalf so that they could experience God's justice and mercy and grace. And I'll just close with Isaiah 58 from the message. The last part of the passage is our vision as a church. So hear this from Eugene Peterson's version of Isaiah 58, verse nine through 12. He says to the church, to the communities of faith, if you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims. Quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadow lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You will be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of the past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate and make the community livable again. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.